listening to you. So today we're going to talk about Vedana. Mm. Uh, there's an interesting point about it. We're talking about basically <clears throat> the Pali word for Vedana means the Pali uh, means the word for feeling. But unfortunately, the English language word feeling <laughs> is broad. Right. <clears throat> and that your question has to do with the momentary feelings that we have in this particular moment. How do those build up over time to give these things called fetters or kilesa? Now, there's actually two different words. One is asava and the other one is kilesa. The word yeah. asava has to do more with um, an outflow or an eruption. Sorry, which one's the outflow again? Asava or? Asava is like an eruption, eruption. and the fetter or the uh, kilesa is like a fetter or a bondage, okay. like a rope. So, uh, and but they are almost used interchangeably. If you look at it from this this perspective, you can see that the asava or the outflow is also translated as canker, which means that in modern language we can think of it as a boil or a uh, cyst. Mm. or a pus pocket, a pox, something like that. Uh, and that <clears throat> the way that people do those normally, let us say some people, um, will let things like blackheads build up because of whatever uh, chemistry their body has, the way that you're uh, practicing cleanliness and whatnot like that. And so then it looks like that when they go to the dermatologist, it's one pimple after another, after another, after another, after another, after another, after another, after another. This is basically now the way that we're looking at it in the sense of hindrances in the moment or thoughts. So the asava has more to do with what we're doing right this very second. And the fetters have to do with the long-term buildup in the sense then that the asava would be the, the pimple. But what causes those pimples? Perhaps an underlying fungus or an underlying um, uh, metabolic imbalance, something like that. And that that would then be what we would consider the fetter or the kilesa. The kilesa yeah. is like uh, uh, <clears throat> the buildup. Uh, okay, here's, here, here's a way of looking at it. Think of that when people smoke too much and they catch lung cancer, the lung cancer now is the kilesa because it's been building up over a long period of time. And the coughing would then be the asava. Is this making sense for you? Of course, yeah. All right. So with that, we can get back to Vedana. Let's talk about the word Vedana for just a moment. Um, 
And I'll tell you an old mistake that I made and I think a lot of people do. Okay. Normally the Vedana is referred to as um, I like it, I don't like it, and I'm not sure whether I like it or not is the best way to kind of understand it. Mm. In the Pali, it is referred to as Sukha Vedana, Dukkha Vedana, and Sukha Dukkha Vedana. And at other times, it's referred to as a Dukkha, a Sukha Vedana. And this then, for some strange reason, got translated as neutral. Yeah. <laughs> okay. It's not neutral, not at all. That it's a feeling and it motivates us. If it were a neutral feeling, it would be nothing at all, easy to deal with. Right? But there are certain kinds of uh, Edukha Esukha Vedana that will cause a war. I mean, it can be that big. It can cause conflicts. It can cause all kinds of things. So let's look at it in the sense that it's not a neutral feeling. Now, uh, it's important to point out that when when we're what we're talking about here is actually an integral part, the middle point of Paticca Samuppada. Basically, we can say that the first half of Paticca Samuppada is real. It's the way the mind works. It's factual. And because of that, it could be considered wholesome if it's understood correctly. It's at the point of Vedana where things get unwholesome. Or let us say that Vedana is the point in time when things go in the direction or, or make a turn to go into the unwholesome. All right. So um, this is why Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa talks about wisdom at the point of contact. Because when our, um, let us say, a newly discovered piece of information actually contacts us, then some sort of feeling is going to arise, some sort of Vedana. Now, uh, the, those can be said as I like it, I don't like it, and I'm not sure whether I like it or not. The I'm not sure I like it or not means is this good or is it bad? Is this dangerous or what? How does that tie into um, the hindrance of worry? It is the hindrance of worry, but hindrance of worry, in fact, or doubt, is the manifestation of the feeling of being insecure or the feeling of not sure. Mm. You don't know whether it's good or bad or you like it or not like it. Um, and so we can see that there are some negative connotations with this. The positive connotation, let us say that if it was a wise Vedana at this point of contact, then that um, unsureness is then going to manifest itself as investigation, as curiosity, as interest, as um, interesting 
but if it uh, that feeling of Vedana is uh, uh, seen ignorantly, then it comes up with what the hell? Oh no! What are we going to do about that? And all kinds of questions that come up. You see, so um, one uh, takes into the uh, into the unwholesome in that since I don't know what it is, something must be wrong. Or something may be dangerous. I'm not sure if I understood that. Can you repeat that? All right. Here's an example. You see someone coming from uh, towards you from a distance. A great distance. Okay, let us say that you're sitting on the side, a great side of a hill uh, of a, of a, a hill that has no trees so that you can see uh, it <clears throat> and you see someone coming towards you. What happens? In your mind, what happens in the mind when you see someone coming towards you? The first well, thing, go ahead. Okay. Um, first of all, you'd see something, and you'd probably label it as as whatever you you've come across in the past, and you know perhaps a man. Okay. Or Let a us woman. say that yeah. it's at such a great distance that you cannot even tell that this. It, you can tell it's a human, but you can't tell how tall they are. You cannot see how they're dressed nor can you see what kind of equipment that they're carrying with them. This could be a nun in a habit or a cop with a pistol or your best friend. You can't tell. Okay. What happens in the mind when we see someone coming at that distance? One of the things is, is that we can become curious. Who is that? Why would we become curious? Uh, we want to know. Why do we want to know? Uh, pres Self-preservation instinct. Pardon? Self-preservation instinct. Ah, we're getting down to the whole reason of why uh, doubt and uncertainty is tied with fear. Because it might be dangerous. <laughs> mm. Ah, that's what that whole thing then is, is that when we become... Uh, confused, fear arises. Now, that's very interesting. I see that in Kitty. I see it in grade school kids a lot in the sense that the teacher asks the child a question. The child <laughs> does not know the answer to the question, mm. and the child freezes or maybe even starts to cry. Why is that? It's because this is a point when the child does not know what's going, uh, the answer to the question, and they perceive that my not knowing is dangerous. Yeah. And the fact is, is that not knowing the answer to the question in reality is not dangerous. But pumping up and starting the ball and going off into that kind of behavior is dangerous. Mom and dad or the teacher is going to get pissed off if the kid starts crying <laughs> instead of answering the question. You see what I mean? That we really do create our own dangers because yeah. we perceive danger, we manufacture danger, and we perceive it through this Vedana of unsure. We don't know whether we like it or not. 
Now let's look at the other two for a moment. We have also the Vedana, which is the Vedana, I don't like it. And the Vedana, I don't like it now uh, becomes a kind of a want in the sense that I want to get rid of it. Hmm. Also in the third one is that I want it. I like it. Okay, so I like it. I don't like it. And I'm not sure about if I like it or not. Those are the three kinds of Vedana. <laughs> one is mixed. The other one is, is known. And those are the only three kinds of, of Vedana. There's not a fourth kind other than the way that Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa talks about it. There is a fourth kind of Kama or a fourth kind of Vedana. And that fourth kind of Vedana is wise Vedana. Because this other, uh, these other three are all ignorant. And they all three lead to suffering. And let's describe why. First off, at one time, my mistake was is that I thought that um, uh, Aid Sukha Aid Dukkha Vedana was a negative emotion because it caused us to become confused. But it doesn't necessarily, it can cause us to look something up on the internet. And we yeah. can uh, gain our knowledge. We can put two and two together. Is that, does, I mean, do, does that uh, relate to investigation of Dhamma? How, how, does, how does that tie into things? Exactly what, so. Yeah. That's what we're talking about is, is that we need to change, change confusion into investigation wisely. Ignorantly, we just stay confused and we start planning on the dangers. <laughs> wisely, it turns into an investigation. But let's look at that one about I, I like it, therefore I want it. Now, originally, and a lot of people will think that, oh, well, at least there's one out of three feelings. One is confusion, one is don't like it, and the third one is I like it. That one must be okay to have. Except that when it's ignorant, it leads into the same basic place as the other two do, in the sense that we want something. Okay, if I like it, I want it. If I don't like it, I want to get rid of it. And if I don't know what it is, I want to know what it is. It's always bound up in this wanting. This wanting, the Pali word for it is tanha, thirst, mm. hunger. We want, we want, we want out of our feelings. But if our feelings are wise, then the feeling does not give rise to want or desire. In other words, instead of just wanting to know, we bring in joy or curiosity and we investigate rather just remaining confused. Okay, so three kinds of Vedana, three kinds of feelings. I like it, I don't like it, and I'm not sure if I like it or not. We practice these things ignorantly over and over and over and over and over again, building up habits in the mind. And so we, uh, it's like we cut a rut or that we, uh, we pound a path into the woods and we keep going down the same path because it's convenient. 
that going through the thicket requires a new kind of investigation. And so we tend to avoid the thickets and continue to go down the path, mm. ever how stuck we get on that path. What so, about the, sorry, what about the Buddha recommending uh, monks to go out into the wilderness and realize that there is no, he said, you know, as long as you're practicing, then you're safe and secure, Some, something along those lines. I'm I'm not sure whether I follow you or not. You're um, there, there's there's one in the middle length discourses I think of of the Buddha overcoming fear by staying out in the wilderness and encouraging okay. monks to do the same, something like that. All right, you're talking about Sutta number four in mm. the Majjhima Nikaya. Uh, yes, that um, basically. What he's really talking about is, is that that which you are afraid of, confront it and investigate it. <laughs> right. Okay. Okay. For instance, if a dog is barking at you, don't run away from the dog. Stand there. <laughs> Hold your hand out. Yeah. Let the dog see you. Okay. So these are the things that he's talking about. And basically, uh, you can understand that in the time of the Buddha, there was a lot of magical thinking, especially a lot of magical thinking in the sense of dangers in the forest. There were real dangers in the forest. There were real pythons. There were real uh, wolves. There were real um, tigers, etc. But most of the dangers in the woods were magical. That's just the way that the mind goes. Anything that goes bump in the night must be a bumpy spook. Uh, and so uh, because of that, some places got reputations as to being more haunted than others. That in the time of the Buddha, Bodh Gaya itself was considered one of those spooky places. <laughs> And here's the reason for that is, is that it was first off fairly close to a river. It was in lowland, possibly flooding from time to time. It had a lot of growth and it was just merely a kind of a dangerous place. But it had the extra dangers to it in the sense that it got the reputation of being spooky haunted uh that could have uh something to do with because uh, we don't know i mean uh, archaeologists might be able to do something about it eventually uh, but it could be associated with a charnel ground that this could have been a charnel ground area where people dumped bodies that in fact indians still dump bodies into rivers well, where is those dead bodies who were uh, dumped into the river? Where are they going to collect? They're going to collect at the bends. They're going to collect in the low areas, the swampy places, and that kind of stuff. So this is the reason why those places get spooky. This is exactly where Buddha, uh, in his becoming enlightened, went. Why? For one thing, it's really secluded. 
It's really secluded because really nobody wants to go there. But then he is not secluded from his own fear. But the reality of the situation is, is that it is not dangerous once we really confront what's going on. And we keep confronting, we keep looking, we keep investigating, and we keep finding out that there's really nothing to be fearful of. Most of our fear in human society that we live in today, I would say about 90% of all fear is false positives. We become afraid when there's no reason at all to be afraid. And our fear often then creates the danger. An example of that is, is that when people become afraid, uh, confused, then they begin to act guilty in front of police. If they're being questioned or interrogated and somebody is absolutely okay, he'll answer the police, he'll be okay with them, everything. But if they can put pressure on him and he is guilty, then he'll be, he start to behave guilty. Guess what? People will behave guilty even when they're not guilty because they feel guilty for some other reason, including habit. Okay, so the, and this guilty feeling that we're talking about is also directly related to fear. Oh, no, not only are the spooks here and they're going to get me, but they're going to get me because they have a reason to take revenge upon me. In other words, I'm their target. Hmm. This is magical thinking that we get into. That the whole world is out to do me harm is the way that paranoids begin to think. Where in fact, there's really no danger. We have created, manufactured the danger, and we created and manufactured the danger out of confusion. So when things go bump in the night, what do we do? Most humans go bump inside. They become terrified. But the wise will listen. They'll start listening very carefully. What's going on? Is there more of that? Mm, all right. Okay. So, um, Vedana then is the instantaneous feeling that comes up. The Vedana that comes up at an instantaneous level is normally associated with thoughts because not only do things go bump in the night, they go bump in the mind also. Unwholesome thoughts will come up. Those unwholesome thoughts that come up about uh, a very common one in our society is, is that you've got a work assignment that's coming up. You've got homework to do. You've got uh, a job to do in the future. And whenever we start thinking about the job that we have to do, then here comes that confusion, that anxiety and all of that kind of stuff. This is um, a point for our practice in Anapanasati is to recognize that if I'm not actually doing that task of writing that email, then there's absolutely no reason to think about it, because if I start thinking about it, then that's the same thing as my mind going bump in the night. 
Right. And it will bring up confusion. It'll bring up uh, uh, anything but satisfaction. And so this is why we want to say, let's not deal with things mentally that we're actually not dealing with in reality. An example of that would be that you uh, are in some sort of conversation with someone. Let us say that it's with a manufacturer and then you've just returned their item or you're telling them that it's bad. Many different kinds of, let us say, quasi or semi-confrontation. It can be with a relative. It can be on anything. And so they write us an email and send it to us. We respond to that email. After we respond to that email, before we even get their response back, we start planning our next response. And we haven't even gotten the email from them yet. They may not ever send another email back. They may have forgotten the whole thing. <laughs> Maybe it'd be better if we did too. <laughs> <laughs> so we don't know what's going to happen. So we start to plan on it because we don't know what's going to happen instead of saying, oh, well, if I don't know what's going to happen because nothing is happening right now, why should I be thinking about and worrying about what's going to happen? In other words, we're talking about these things that go bump in the mind actually create this feeling of confusion, anxiety, and all of that kind of stuff. And that if we just simply had wholesome thoughts instead, we wouldn't have to deal with all of that self-created danger. that is manufactured in the mind. And the Buddha talks about it in great detail in the Paticca Samuppada teaching of exactly how that happens. That if we like something, then we want it. If we don't like something, then we want to change it. If we don't know what it is, then we want to know what it is so we'll know whether we can kick it out or grab hold of it. In other words, we don't know whether to bring it in or to push it out. And the whole thing of pushing and pulling then is what our whole mental set is based upon. And that is then critical thinking. Right. <clears throat> it's very interesting to see how the teachings in the Bible of Adam and Eve fit into this precisely. In the sense that Adam and Eve uh, threw themselves out of their own paradise by judging the place. You live in a paradise until something goes bump in your mind and then you destroy your paradise. Right thinking is dangerous. How do we do that? Okay, so um, if if we like something and we are wise to that liking, then we can just merely say, I like it, but I don't want it. That phrase, in fact, is a very, very famous phrase, uh, and it is attributed to Achan Semedo in a conversation with Achan Cha. Mm. When uh, it was at the Katen ceremony, you've been in Thailand, so you know the Katen. And yes. all the girls are all dolled up at the Katen ceremony, and Achan Sumedo uh, is looking out at all of that, and Achan Cha comes and says, what do you think? What, what's going on here? And Sumedo 
knowing the teaching of Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, knowing the teaching of uh, Petitu Samapada says, oh, well, I like it, but I don't want it. Now, that's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Okay, most young men, when they when they encounter a female who is all dolled up intentionally, I mean, they, some of them are wearing 10 or $20 worth of makeup every day. They want to look attractive. It's intentional for them to be looking attractive. The guys want to see the girls as attractive. Well, wait a minute. We've started using the word attraction here. What we're actually looking at is, um, I like it. And the next step is using words like attraction or desirable. That's already one foot in the grave. That's tanha. If she's attractive, if she's desirable, that means not only do I like it, I want it. It's desirable. So the desire comes in. You can see how they're, they're directly related, but that desire is only there ignorantly. If we are wise to the way that we feel, then we can deal with that feeling much more easily. In fact, we don't have to deal with the feeling at all once wisdom comes into play, because with wisdom, we interrupt that sequence and we stop it right there. Therefore, there is no tanha, and without tanha, there is no upadana. Now, upadana is the point in time when the wanting, uh, let us say, tips over the edge into the concept of ownership in the sense of I like her, I want her, she's mine. That she's mine, that's the upadana. And you can see, in fact, that the gathering up of the feelings of liking going into desire is the same that desire that creation and the manufacturing of the desire is also the manufacturing and the creation of that which owns the object so it goes from liking wanting to ownership but in the ownership we're creating an owner that did not exist before the owning started this is brilliant. The Buddha figured this out, that selfishness is actually uh, an owner that owns something. And what he is owning is the mental uh, thing, the desired object. And so once that um, ownership, once that owner is created, it's that which suffers. So, so what about the good stuff? Well, let's talk about the, the crap for a little while longer. <laughs> it will okay. get to good stuff. I mean, I mean, I mean, in terms of ownership, um, I, I mean, like, oh, like, I, I'm not sure, like, um, because, because pride is, is, is an issue. Um, pride is a, you know, seen as an unskillful quality. 
but um when when you recognize good qualities and and you uh you know you you, you gather them and and you you know uh enjoy them i know i know i think at some point it all just takes care of itself but um I, I, maybe you can see see what i'm getting at or maybe i don't know well I can understand what what you're thinking about. Let's look at it from a, a kind of a different perspective. Okay. Let's go to the Trilokana for a moment. Anicca Dukkha Anatta. You've heard that many times. Sabe Sankara Anicca. Sabe Sankara Anatta uh, Dukkha. Sabe Dhamma Anatta. Basically, what we can then say is, is that let's look at a particular kind of a Nietzsche. The kind of a Nietzsche that happens in this moment. The kind of a Nietzsche that actually has some sort of impact to us in sensual awareness. An example of that is, is that you're, on, uh, you're standing up, looking down at a hardwood floor. And you do not see anything in particular other than the hardwood floor until the uh, the gnat or the flea or the tick actually moves. And then you can see the tick when it moves, okay? Motion contacts the eyes. It's actually physiological down into the eye level. The eyes are attracted to movement. So because of that movement that the tick made, it catches our attention, as it were. So a Nietzsche has happened. Now, if there is, um, uh, with that event, that a Nietzsche that happened, we can go in one of two directions. We can go in the direction of uh, ignorance, which will lead us into dukkha. Or we can go into wisdom, which will lead us into anatta. There's no self here. In other words, I am not that tick that I saw on the floor. But many people, when they see that tick on the floor, ah, danger, right. danger, danger. And so they want to do something about it. So um, here's the point is that wisdom at that point of contact means that the whole rest of the sequence is going to be interrupted so that we do not go to tanha we do not go to upadana we do not go then into the woeful states now the buddha talks about that there are four modes of clinging the four modes of clinging are clinging to views, clinging to rules, clinging to material objects, and clinging to the self. We can also see that these things are directly related to instincts. The Buddha didn't have the term instinct. We do, but he did use the term underlying tendencies for these things. So he knew exactly what he was talking about. If Because what are... Uh, instincts other than underlying tendencies hmm. Hmm. Uh, so the underlying tendency for instance of holding views about 
this is a good government. This is a bad government. The, the Democrats are bad. The Republicans are worse. Independents are out of here. You know, all of those kind of views have to do with identification or attachments. So if I identify with the Democrats, then I will tend to speak sweetly of Democrats. And if I uh, and uh, uh, let us say acidically about Republicans. But if I'm a Republican, then that reverses. Now, this is basically what that means is, is that we join a camp or we join a tribe when we take on a view. This is, in fact, the territorial instinct. But the territorial instinct is, in fact, a um, almost a reaction to or response to the nesting instinct. The nesting instinct wants us to come together, but not too many. <laughs> so that only us is in this little group and everybody else is out there. They're others. This is our territory and they're not in our territory. This is what gives rise that instinct that they have. The Buddha knew quite a lot about it in the sense that humans are no longer physically territorial like the dogs are. We have mental territories. Doctors have their own territory. Lawyers have their own territory. Democrats have their own territory. You see what I mean? Mm. That we have mental territories and that this mental territory that we have, along with also attachments to rights, rules, and rituals, which is the nesting instinct, and our materialism, all of those three are in service to the primary instinct, the self-preservation instinct, and its language is fear. Things are dangerous. If it's the self-preservation instinct, then what do we need to preserve the self? Instinctually, to preserve it means that it's in danger of being uh, temporary. Back to a Nietzsche. So when things keep happening that are keep ter uh, temporary, 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 that means that this, the self-preservation instinct is in danger. And that danger is the dukkha. All right. So in those four modes of clinging, surprisingly enough, the Buddha then mentions that there are four woeful states. And these four woeful states are the four woeful states that we wind up in due to these four modes of clinging. And there's almost a one-to-one -one correspondence to it. Okay. One of the um, uh, woeful states is called the hungry ghost. And what that basically means is the individual who is in that woeful state is wanting something that he doesn't have. Many meditators want enlightenment. Other meditators want past life experiences, and they work really hard to get these things. Other people want money, and they rob banks. So it's the wanting and being unfulfilled. Um, that's the, the situation of the hungry ghost or the pita, and that they're pictorialized as like a, a balloon or a big pot that has a very, very small lid or mouth. So that uh, it's very difficult to fill up that big pot because the opening, the hole is so small. That's why it never gets filled. It's never satisfied. 
Well, that's how we are. Our our space our, for desire is huge, but our ability to meet our desires is very small. Our uh, how to say it is is that our reach is greater than our grasp. Excuse me, Demaretto. Are, are these um, are these woeful states of being seem to be metaphorical? You know what I mean? Yes, they are precisely yeah. metaphorical. And you know where the metaphor came from? It came from the Brahmins. This is part mm. of the culture that the Buddha was raised in, except in the Brahmins' idea, these woeful states have to do with being reborn into these woeful states. And that's exactly what does happen. The individual, uh, let us say the Dhamma dude, is bopping down the road, everything is cool, no worries, no problems, everything is all right. And then he sees something that he likes, and he becomes ignorantly attached to that, he wants it, right? So as he's bopping down the road, he's in a good state, but when he wants something, then he goes into the state of desire, and that's when he becomes that hungry ghost. He was reborn into that state through his desire. He did not have to die and stay in a grave for 300 years and then get reborn as a hungry ghost. He got reborn as that hungry ghost immediately. That's what the real issue about the word rebirth is in the suttas. In fact, the, the, there are several words that we can use in the Pali. One is bhava, which means development or becoming. One is jati, which is translated as um, rebirth, when in fact it's just birth. And the other one is the, uh, the word hoti, or uh, hantu, depending upon the ending of the word, but it's a, it's a verb and it has various verb endings, uh, but the root word would be hoti. And that has to do with being. So we have development, becoming, and birth. And that uh, because of uh, the cultural Christian influence and the way that things got translated, is that the English language version of the Pali Sutras is even much more magical than the Thai translations. There is some magic in there, but in all cases, the word rebirth here always means something that happens in the mind when we go from bopping down the road into one of these woeful states, we're reborn into these woeful states, and the way that we got there was through tanha, upadana, bhava, jati, dukkha. Mm. So after after jati, you might have a feeling of of being that thing, for example. Exactly, I am that. Yeah. I am a Democrat. So when you're uh, sitting there just bopping down your YouTube, and all of a sudden you hear, oh. The Democrats lost an election. Guess what? I am a Democrat, therefore I feel bad. And that happened in the mind very, very quickly. Right. But if the Democrats have a bad day, and I don't care about Democrats, I'm, I'm a human being here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> then I do not identify with the Democrats, and therefore there's no reason to feel bad. But if it if it tugs at that Vedna, then you know the response will call to being. Right, that's the becoming. We become that Democrat that just we just heard about, and we become it over and well, over. Sorry, the response may come to being, not will, may, depending mm -hmm. on you. <laughs> okay, so now we have these four woeful states. The one that we've been talking about is the um, uh, the hungry ghost. Another one is. Um, uh, the animal state. This is the most common in our society. The most common, woeful, miserable state that humans get themselves in is the animal state of doing what you're told to do. Going along to get along, just like the plow horse is just loving his pasture. He's got all kinds of things to eat out in that pasture. And the farmer comes up and, and attaches the plow to the horse and makes him work for several days, plowing up his own pasture. And guess what the horse gets out of that plowed up pasture? Nothing. The groceries go into the house. The horse is left with hay. Okay, how many times have you done that? How many times have you plowed your own pasture because you were told to do it? Put away your toys, that plowing your pasture right there. Put your toys down, put your cell phone down and do your homework. That's dumb animal plowing his pasture. <laughs> and we get into that state a lot. In other words, basically, it's a it's a bait and switch. It's a promise. <clears throat> it's the carrot and the stick. Right. Hmm. It's you do what you're told to do, and if you do what you're told to do, you'll get a reward. If you go do your first grade, you'll get a reward. What's your reward for first grade, second grade? And if you go do your second grade, what's your reward for second grade, third grade? And what's your reward? You, you get the pattern. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, so it's a, a promise okay. of, uh, of, of kind of... I don't know, kind of a delayed happiness when the happiness should be immediate. It a, could be sense. if we were wise. Yeah. yeah. But we delay the gratification because of the promise that things will get better later. And so the hungry ghost and the and the dumb animal. Uh, the next one, which is the easy one to understand, is the hell. Hell is a woeful state. And what is hell other than a place or a thing that you desperately want out of? Anger. When we get really angry, we desperately want something. We get really desperate for it. Okay. So if uh, I say that uh, just off the top of the head, I'm in a conversation with someone who says that um, George uh, W. Bush, the president, I think, number 40, 43. Senior or junior. Uh, right. He, I don't know the difference. He was in the Air Force. Somebody said he was in the Air Force. The facts are that he was not in the Air Force. The facts are that he was in the Texas National Air National Guard. 
And that's where he learned to fly. He didn't, he was not in the Air Force. Okay. So now I've got to make sure that this idiot that I'm talking to that thinks that he was in the uh, Air Force, <laughs> I've got to fix his brain. <laughs> Only he does not want his brain fixed. And so this argument is ensuing about did where did George uh, W. Bush learn to fly an airplane in the Air Force or in the Air, uh, Texas Air National Guard, and both of them are in hell, <laughs> arguing each one of them desperate to get his way, each one of them knowing that he's correct, which gives rise to a Buddhist joke. The Christian and the atheist were standing on the street corner in one of these heated arguments. Each one of them desperate, only their conversation was about hell itself. And the uh, atheist was saying, there ain't no hell. And the Christian was saying, the hell there ain't. And boy, they're really in the Buddhist walks by. And he starts and he looks at him and he smiles and he says, hell, right now you're both in it. Yeah. Uh, mm, yeah, I've, I've brought this up before, but there was um, uh, an old play where some scholar uh, uses magic to conjure up uh, a demon who will do anything he wants for him, you know, manifest any any desire possible. And uh, I think I think um, the main character asks him, uh, um, "Is is hell is hell real or whatever?" And he says, "Why hell?" this is hell <laughs> you know you're already here you're already in hell yeah yeah <laughs> this is it warning things yeah. <laughs> and um okay so another state of hell would be like anxiety that we don't actually have to be arguing with someone but we can be in a state of anxiety and we want out of that anxiety so badly that we'll do almost anything to get out of that anxiety other than deal with the anxiety directly. In other words, the anxiety becomes a motivator to go do something rather than the motivator, uh, the motivation that needs to be looked at. Mm. It's almost like secondarily. Here's an, a very clear example of that is, is that I want a girl, therefore I go buy a car. Not just a junker, a chick magnet. You see where that going? In other words, we take a secondary thing. I want a girl, so I go buy a car. <laughs> because the delusional thinking is, is that the girl will think I'm wonderful because I've got a wonderful car. Unfortunately, most teenage boys don't recognize that most teenage girls are smarter than that. <laughs> <laughs> but not all of them. Mm. So back to anxiety then. We have anxiety and we think, oh, I have anxiety because I didn't do my homework. If I go do my homework, I'll be finished with my anxiety. And while the guy's doing his homework, he doesn't feel the anxiety. But when he finishes the homework a half an hour later, the anxiety comes back. Basically, because he wasn't doing anything, and he just recognized that the anxiety is still there. Do you know the Greek myth of uh, Sisyphus? I think that's the. I think that's what he was. It was named, uh, rolling the boulder up the hill. Yes, Sisyphus. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 
Mm. And Sisyphus doesn't realize that, hey, now that the ball is rolled down to the bottom of the hill, if I can find a particular side of that uh, boulder to sit on, I can sit in the shade. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What the, where now, does the um, where does the term shady come from? I was thinking about this because you think shade is like a refuge. Is it because culture would kind of grow in in shades? And sorry if I'm sidetracking here, but it's just a thought I had. The well, word shady. I. When we think shade doesn't necessarily have to be either good or bad, that right. it depends upon the context. That in fact, I was talking about the good shade in the sense that he could finally rest, because here he had been in the sun, throwing this boulder up the hill. It keeps rolling back down. It keeps, you know, doomed mm. to. What is the doom? I would say the doom to roll the ball up the hill or the boulder up the hill is his anxiety or need to get the ball up to the top of the hill. Mm. Uh, I know that in uh, when that is taught in high school or whatever, the idea is, is that there's some magical being or a god that's forced him or has punished him by giving him this task to roll the ball up the hill. But the obvious point is, is that Sisyphus just wants to roll the ball up the hill. Mm. And so long as he wants to roll it up the hill, he is doomed to failure because of his desire that he could, in fact, just sit down and enjoy his life sitting in the shade of the boulder. But also right. the shade, the word shade has to do with that when things are not uh, out in the sunlight, not able to be seen, if they're in the right. shade, then they're difficult to understand. So a shady character means that he's trying to hide something. Not able okay. to be seen. Yeah, so it's so, not really about uh, feeling, but appearances. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. Okay. Uh, so Sisyphus then is doomed to this state of anxiety. And he keeps thinking that he'll feel better if he gets the boulder to the top of the hill. That's the delusion. That's what causes this to be a hell for him. Okay, and the gravity, in a sense, is... Um... Teacher Samapada or uh, Anicca, right? Uh, like it, it gets to the top of the hill, it's not finished because the gravity is going to roll it down anyway because things are temporary and changing. Everything is temporary, yeah. and everything is changing, right. And yet, here in our society, we're all Sisyphus with thousands of uh, boulders to put on top of thousands of hills. Right. There's no end to it. Right. So that's a hell state. There's no end to it. Uh, and uh, it's an uncomfortable situation. Just never gets resolved. So that's the third one. That's hell. And it's associated with anxiety and fear are the two feelings. But underneath that anxiety and, and um, uh, anger and all, is the fourth one, the Asuras. The Asuras right. are the same as the Titans. Yeah. Uh, they Many people will think that, wait a minute, these are heavenly beings. Isn't one of the places to be, be, be reborn is in a heaven? Yeah, but this heaven is the, is the real kind of heaven, a regular kind of heaven. 
in the sense that it's not a magical heaven, it's a real state of the Asuras are like the Titans, they're the warriors. They're the heavenly warriors. They are dressed for battle. They are ready to go to war. And they don't. Mm. Why did they not go to battle? Is because they probably, I mean, the only people that they've got to, uh, to battle would be the higher gods, which are nat- naturally is going to smack them. And so the Asuras are all dressed up for battle and no place to go, no battles to have. An example of that is the child who has one line in his school play and he walks out on the stage and freezes. He knew his lines, he knew what was going, but he became afraid. And so the underlying uh, feeling is this assura or this feeling that we have uh, that prevents us from acting because of confusion, because of fear and and whatnot. So these four woeful states are where we re- is where the self is reborn into, which has to do directly with these four uh, modes of clinging. So we basically what the Dhamma Dude or the practitioner is going to be doing, according with Bhikkhu Buddha Das, is as his skills develop, he can catch things quicker and quicker and quicker and back up in the sequence of events that we we teach Patichu Samapada both forward and reverse. Because if we teach it only in forward order, we're only looking at the cause effect, cause effect, this causes that, that causes the next thing, the next yeah. thing causes this. Is that just too much caught in time and, and narrative and story? Right, but the actual investigation needs to be done in reverse order. How quick are you to catch this stuff happening? Basically, the slow ones, the beginners, or even ordinary people catch on to things way too late. An example of that is an argument that's happening in the bar. One guy is arguing over this sport team and the other one is arguing over that sport team. But it could be politics, it could be religion, it could be anything. Two guys are arguing. When does that argument end? Think about it. What are the possibilities? One of them would kind of wake up and says, you know, I got to go home. And he just walks right out of the bar. He woke up. Second possibility. One of the people who were in the bar comes and tries to break up the fight. Hey, guys, wake up here. Let's look at what's going on. Third possibility, neither one of them wake up and no one comes to interfere or wake them up. Somebody's going to wind up dead or injured. That in fact, late at that, very late in that night, by 3 or 4 a.m., you may have some bodies being dumped in the river. Why? Because nobody ever woke up. But most people will wake up in the argument someplace. The husband and wife, for instance, are arguing and the husband will uh, will yell something and slam the door right after he's had the thought of, wait a minute, this is going wrong. I have gone too far. I have hurt her or I've said something wrong or this is going nowhere. And that wake up happens way too late but at least they woke up because if they didn't somebody's going to get hurt or dead so 
The question is, how soon can we wake up? The sooner that we can wake up, the better off we are. If you can wake up to your anger, how soon? Are you going to have uh, a shouting match to where you've yelled seven times? How about four? How about just one time you yell and then you wake up and say, this is over. How about can you catch your anger before you even say one word? And this is what I would recommend to begin to see anger as anger when it comes up as anger and catch it before you ever say a word, because then you have a chance of changing it. This is wisdom now at that point of contact. And we have choice over the Vedana once we wake up. And the choice that we're making here now is I am not going to follow that uh, feeling of I don't like this and I have to do something about it. And we're going to have the feeling of, whoa, wait a minute here. Let's not get into that. Let's not go there. Okay, so that's one point is after the anger arises, but before we say anything. And then we can go even further back in time to where as the feeling itself arises before we go into that, because if we get anger, that means that we've already gone into Tanha. If we start yelling, now we're in Upadana. But if we can catch it at the point of Vedana, then that means that when that anger feeling comes up, we can do something about it right then and there. We don't have to express the anger. We can take a deep breath. Yeah, that's the best thing to do is to take that deep breath. Have, sorry, have you ever, I, we've talked about this before with laughter being a, inappropriate in like courts or a funeral, for example. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I, I've, I think from, a, maybe from experience, I don't know if maybe I'm imagining it or something. Um, there are cases where if, if somebody is, is pissed off um and you and you just don't respond <laughs> or if you smile or if you take a deep breath they'll get angry at you for being happy it's just it's very it's very strange yeah mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. very strange that's why it's a good idea in that situation to say you know i gotta go to the bathroom <laughs> or i'll see you in a moment or look what time it is or <laughs> do something to make an escape okay <laughs> <clears throat> Okay, so let's let's spend a few moments now on the other side of it, because you were about to ask, well, what about it when it begins to get positive? Mm. But what that means is, is that now we have wisdom at that point of contact. And let us talk about it in the sense that not in normal, ordinary, worldly day, but let's talk about it in the sense of uh, practice, the practice of Anapanasati. Okay, now what we're going to practice is, is that we're going to practice having only wholesome thoughts. If we practice having only wholesome thoughts, then that means that when unwholesome thoughts come up, we're going to stop those unwholesome thoughts before they lead to unwholesome feelings. So if you have thoughts of joy, then you're going to have feelings of joy. If you have thoughts of anger, then you're going to have feelings of anger. Makes sense, doesn't it? So the Vedana is actually um, 
the outcome of our internal representations of how things impact us, which means our thoughts. Once we think something or once we put something together, once we put into something as an understanding, including an example of that is the child yells. We hear the yelling. We put that together to find out that what is the yell? Oh, the yell is, is that the child is just not getting their way and that's a tantrum and tantrums are bad and I don't like tantrums and you can see all those thoughts will happen almost within a half second or less. And then we have a reaction to that child having a tantrum. Rather than recognizing that if I was having only wholesome thoughts, then when I hear the child in the pain of a tantrum, now my feelings that come up are going to be feelings of compassion, not uh, annoyance. Why? Because my own thoughts were now wholesome. So here's where we begin to interrupt things is we begin to have only wholesome thoughts, only wholesome thoughts, only wholesome thoughts, and the wholesome thoughts in the practice of Anapanasati, wholesome thoughts would be like gladdening the mind. If we are gladdening the mind now at this particular version of Paticca Samapada, the, the feelings are wise, which means now the feelings are not the feeling of, I like it, therefore I want it ignorantly or that I don't like it and I've got to do something about it ignorantly, or if I don't know what it is and that I've got to become confused ignorantly. Now with wisdom there, we can behave in uh, a happy way. In other words, we can actually at this point control the way that we feel. How do we feel when we want to feel that way? When we feel the way we want to feel, how do we feel? We feel sukha which is exactly opposite of dukkha. In other words, which direction are you going to go when a Nietzsche has either anatta or dukkha? Why do we keep going for the dukkha when we could have gone for the anatta coming from it from the position of there's no work here for me to do. There's no job for me. There is, this is not mine. When we recognize that a lot of the stuff that we thought was our business and in fact is not our business, This is where we begin to change those thoughts that give rise to different contact and a different kind of feeling. So instead of having fear coming out as Vedana, instead it comes out as uh, safe and secure. If we want to cultivate safe and secure and we want to be able to cultivate it so much so that we can actually go and spend a few hours in the graveyard happily without any fear at all. And when we leave the graveyard, we go break into the morgue and spend the next several hours there happily because we're not afraid of anything. Why? Because we're practicing seeing what's there. Oh, it's just a morgue. There are no spooks in the morgue. All the spooks that people think are in the morgue are actually in the mind. They're not in the morgue. Yeah, and, yeah. German, <laughs> German uh, word for mind is Geist, right? Uh, Geist means ghost, which in English mm-hmm. comes from the mind. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, and also, so, that's where Zeitgeist, you know, uh, also comes precisely. from. Precisely. 
Well, that's what the word spirit means also. And we have words like expire and whatnot. Actually, the words um, expire and spirit have to do with the air, but that's where ghosts are. They're airy-fairy. They're yeah. not really there. Right? So that's the that that's the, the basis of the language that we use. But when we are uh, practicing in such a way so that the mind is completely free from uh, unwholesome thoughts, which means that the mind is free from hindrances, then naturally the feelings that are going to arise are not going to be these ignorant feelings that take us into dukkha. They're going to be wise feelings that keep us in a state of sukha. And this is how we practice Paticca Samapada. If we can get the mind quick enough so that we can get a mind into good state and stay in that good state, then the invitations to go into Vedana, into bad feeling, is not going to be there so much. And, and the possibility of anger is going to be reduced and reduced and reduced and reduced. So then, in fact, you go out and kind of looking for things that you know intentionally used to piss you off. And you go back and revisit that and say, hey, you can't piss me off now. <laughs> right. Okay. So an example of that for many people would write, yeah, watch Donald Trump for five minutes without getting unhappy. <laughs> they do that for fun and then get yeah do that yeah. for fun yeah i can enjoy that i'm in great shape yeah. i can listen to him lie and lie and lie and get a big kick out of it i don't have to feel bad okay that sisyphus does not have to feel bad about rolling that stone up the hill just doesn't have to do that it's not his business not his job right mm. Uh, to do so, we are reborn as the um, the the dumb animal, the worker. So now that we're looking at this, we've gotten ourselves actually into a state of sukha. The mind is free from hindrances, and that we keep doing that, and we keep practicing it over and over again until we get then the uh, confidence that I can throw the hindrances out anytime I want to. This is the first step of um, the, the noble path, is the knowledge that I can, in fact, clean my mind out. I do not have to go down that path of bad feelings because I can have only wholesome thoughts. I can see things the way that they really are right now. And so that's the, what we begin to practice. We practice oh, maybe a point, maybe a point. You mentioned about um, going back, to, for example, to to watch a video of Donald Trump or something to see to see. Oh, this time I don't have to feel bad about it. I can enjoy it. Well, this is um, a kind of reinvestigation, right? And um, I'm sorry to bring it up, kind of, but in the in the Burmese maps, there is uh, a kind of review stage at the end um but you know I, i'm not an expert on that but I, I did i did think about a review uh recently on 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 thinking oh that's what that was that's what that was yeah um how does that how does reinvestigation about step 16 of the 16 stages of insight 
right? Mm. Okay. The important thing to recognize is, is that that sequence is not necessarily chronological. Yeah, yeah. That, in fact, that um, uh, review that you're talking about has to be the very, very first thing that people do in order to get on the spiritual path in the first place. Uh, right, I think, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if we recognize it like that, then we uh, then it's better not to think of things as hard and fast. A has to finish before B can start, and B has to finish before C can start is the normal way that we're taught in the Western mind. The mind doesn't work that way. Yeah. Is and, this just kind of dependent on, on how we write and read information uh, in, in a way? It's like left to right, it has to go from one point and then it has to go to an end point, but it doesn't really work like that. It's all interplay and... Uh, exactly. Yeah. And in a way, it's almost like the Western mind, when we see movement, we think of a marching band or troops. Hop, two, three, four, making progress on the way to get there someday, right? Life is not bad at all. Life is a waltz. <laughs> yeah. It's not even in 4-4 four, four time. It's da, 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 da. <laughs> all over the place and we waltz from here and waltz from there and all over and life is really a waltz and we're trying to make it into a march and really life is a waltz mm. and when we change that mentality from uh trying to make progress trying to get something trying to go someplace up two three four get or done into why don't we just enjoy the dance? <laughs> We're not interested in getting across the floor. We'll eventually get over there and we'll get back, but it doesn't matter whether what distance across the dance floor we're making. The point is, is are we enjoying the dance? So this is where we then practice with the Anapanasati so that now because we've gotten that sukha over and over again, and we know we can do it, this is when the attitude changes. That attitude is, I can do this. No matter how obstructed the mind can get, I can clean this out. That attitude then is what we then refer to as the pity, or the can-do, the championship, the feeling like I'm on top of the world. That gives rise to that statement about... Uh, I Sorry, I used to think of, of pity as like a very physical thing, but it's... I know it's been described as all physical, but in fact, the reality of it is, is that it's all emotional that has physical components. Let me give you a demonstration of that. Okay. What does the guy do when he makes the touchdown Celebrates. that wins the game? What does he do for the next 10 or 20 seconds? Uh, well, celebrates, maybe show, I've heard the term showboarding before. All right. But one thing that you can tell that he does not do as soon as he makes the touchdown, he just lays down and takes a nap. <laughs> Nobody, nobody's, ever, nobody's ever done that before? Nobody I know of has ever done that before, and it would certainly confuse <laughs> the audience. <laughs> <laughs> they would think that he's injured or dead. Yeah. But in fact... 
after he makes the touchdown, that's when the exhilaration comes. Mm-hmm. And that exhilaration of the feelings of the body of exhilaration, euphoria, the feeling of I can do this, the win, that takes on a lot of body chemistry that forces the body into making some movements and some changes. An example of that is what does a guy do when he gets that touchdown? What does he do with his arms? Usually he, put them in his, yeah. he puts them up. Exactly. This is what that. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's this movement. Yay. Okay. That's then the physical manifestation of the pity. And that's what we can <laughs> see. But we immediately uh, go with We know that he is behaving that way because of the feelings that he has on the inside. This is why pity is normally referred to in later literature, like the Vasudhi Maga, as it's it's referred to as things that happen physically to the body because the guy, I guess, didn't know how to talk about what was happening emotionally that gave rise to that physical stuff. So, in a in sitting still, or not perhaps not entirely still, but um, you know, let's let's say um, uh, when you reach pity, what is what is the the bodily change there? Is it is it a smile? Is it uh, what what exactly okay. do you say? Yeah. Let's let's look at it from um, the perspective of the breathing, for instance. When you are doing uh, very, very shallow breathing, then that means that not a lot of oxygen is coming in and not a lot of carbon dioxide is going out. And so that ah, okay. Mm. So the so the blood chemistry is going to be acidic. If you're taking a lot of deep breaths and oxygenate the body, then that's also going to be throwing out the carbon dioxide and that's going to lower the pH level of the blood. As well as oxygenate the body and the (laughs) body is going to then become responsive to that by feeling tingly alive. That yes, Anapanasati does have this physical component that a lot of people don't understand. That breathing well actually is very curative. And breathing shallowly is something that people do in fear. Mm, okay. Uh, when, um, when, uh, how can I put this? First time I, w- I was, I was understanding. Who knows the first? You know, sometime I, I kind of got a understanding of pity, and and then I would. Um, I don't know. I I would make the breathing would be long, but it would be also be quite coarse, and I would get stuck in that long, coarse breathing because the pity felt quite good in in a way. I mean, that falls apart when you stick with it, but I remember being at that stage. Oh, some people then will do that, and then they say, uh, "I can only do it for a little while because my lungs or my chest gets tired." or it becomes too much work. Mm. The, uh, the point of it is you just, that's because uh, the breathing is too coarse. We're actually looking at, in Anapanasati, a breathing that is long and slow, 
that is relaxing, a relaxing breath. So then from finding, <laughs> finding the long, I've, I've heard it called like a subtle or fine breath as, as well. Um, finding the, the sukha in there. I think you mentioned it as at one point as the, the guy who comes home from work after a long shift and just slumps down slumped, in the, yeah. in the armchair and, you know, kind of almost like gone in, in, I'm, I'm not sure how to put it. Like there's, there's no work involved other than enjoying that, uh, pleasant feeling. Yeah. Precisely. Right. So yeah. we want to try to do some breathing that's not shallow, but it's not coarse. That it's just long, deep, easy breathing, making sure that we're throwing the carbon dioxide out on the out breath. This is an exhausting breath. Literally, we want to exhaust. Mm. We can think of it as a sigh. As a what? A sigh. A sigh of a relief. Sigh. Okay. A sigh of relief. That's what we want to have. Every out breath should be a sigh of uh. relief. Every in breath should be a nurturing breath. <laughs> people get some people. Sorry, some people get offended by sighing. <laughs> you know, <sighs> yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. a lot of uh, uh, let's right yeah, place, yeah. right time again. Yeah. Sorry. Here's something that we call a sigh, that is uh, not a sigh. First, I'll do the sigh. Here's a sigh. Look at me. Okay. Here's a sigh. Now, here's something that people call a sigh that's not really a sigh. Well, I've got to tell you that this stuff is really hard to understand. Okay, that's not a sigh. Yeah, I don't know. That, that, that is a forced out breath that is discrimination of um, frustration. Yeah. Why don't you get my it's point? It's a short breath. Or uh, like um, one person that I've seen do this on a regular basis to the exasperated, uh, exasperating exactly. So there's an exasperation that you see uh, commentators, news commentators do a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. Right. Uh, in, instead of the, the kind of sigh that we're talking about is a very relaxed sigh, a sigh of relief, <sighs> not, a, not an exasperating uh, sigh. So that sigh of relief and an in-breath of um, taking in joy, taking in uh, the air, the, keeping to do that, continuing to do that, then oxygenates the body and we become what is called tingly alive. We become tingly alive, vibrantly alive. And this is what we're looking for is to become vibrantly, tingly alive. And yet many people, when they hear meditation, they think about going deep into meditation. We're not going deep into meditation. We're becoming vibrantly alive. We're alert. We're sharp. We know what's going on inside the mind. We're oxygenated and energized and up for it, paying close attention to what's going on. This is what is first jhana then, is up and alert. And it has a sukha and it has most specifically complete freedom from the hindrances during this period of time.
That means now when we're doing our research in Paticca Samuppada, when we're in the first jhana, there is Vedana, and then it ends at Vedana, and there is no Tanha, Upadana, Bhava, Jati, and Dukkha. Because it's all coming in fresh, right? Because it's all yeah. coming in fresh and it's all yeah. wholesome. One wholesome thought after another, after another, after another. And when we're in that state, that's when we can then move further back into time or quicker into it so that we can begin to now experience the first half of Paticca Samuppada. Because the second half of Paticca Samapada is what the ordinary mind in Dukkha does to wind up in Dukkha. Yeah. Now we've stopped that and we've gotten all the mind's thoughts are wholesome, which means that now we're actually at the point of Salayatana, in the sense that our Salayatana now is all wholesome thoughts. One wholesome thought after another after another. It's not based upon the old Sankara from the past. This is all brand new stuff now. And so the salyatanas that we produce now are all very wholesome, which means now wisdom at the point of contact with these wholesome thoughts and the second half of Paticca Samapada doesn't exist. It's cut. It's whacked. Okay, the first time we whacked it is at the feelings. Now we're whacking it right at salyatana. To get into first jhana, we've whacked it at salyatana and we're only going to allow wholesome thoughts in. As we progress through the jhanas, then we only have wholesome things to note. Everything that's happening is happening is happening wholesomely because we're only allowing wholesome things in the mind and wholesome things to happen. So the unwholesome side of Paticca Samapada is interrupted. That's not the same as the Mahasi method. The Mahasi method starts off noting whatever there is, which means now you're going to be noting a whole lot of dukkha. Yeah, I, th I think I think a part of that method it's it's kind of so strange. Like the instruction, it's like, oh, you 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 want it you want it to be like that. Okay, feel free to note it how it is, and then maybe you can wake up if you if you don't like it. Um, I don't know. It's very strange instruction. I know. And this is then why people have. OK, so eventually the sequence is fearfulness, misery, disgust, despair, strong desire to get out of that state, followed by then redoubling of the efforts. If we had redoubled the efforts right from the very beginning, we would not have ever had to have gone through misery, fear despair, disgust, and a strong desire to get out of it. We were practicing correctly from the first place. Yeah. So the 16 stages of insight practice is actually a method for failures <laughs> because they're not practicing correctly from the beginning, and it's only in step 11 when they begin to start practicing correctly when they could have done that right from the get-go. The very first thing that happens is seclusion, and then from that we have to purify the mind, which means to get rid of the hindrances early, not 20 years in. You don't have to go through some dark night of the soul and then get the idea, finally I'm going to start meditating after 20 years of something else I was calling meditation. Now we can start directly. 
by getting rid of those unwholesome thoughts right from the very beginning, and then there's no need to go through misery, disgust, despair, and strong desire. That we're eliminating that right from the very beginning. So um, we can see then that the problem is uh, not that the 16 stages of insight are wrong. It's that the um, the understanding of these is, is that they're A and then B and then C and then D through the 16 stages. That's the problem. Yeah. That all of these things are there. Let's do them in the right order so that we don't have to have a dark night of the soul. That we can do that ongoing um, uh, reevaluation every minute. Don't have to wait until you're finished with all of the other stuff. The thing that I find the most amusing is, is that the um, on its step 12 is when the Four Noble Truths are brought in. <laughs> to where, oh no, the Four Noble Truths, that's the, that's the foundation of where we get started. We don't have to wait until step 12 before we introduce the Four Noble Truths. And then people will say, oh, well, that means that finally at step 12 is when you finally understand the Four Noble Truths. And that's the point that I'm making. Yes. Why do you have to wait to understand? <laughs> this, <laughs> Why yeah. don't you understand mm. it right from the very beginning? <laughs> but the thing is, people who go on retreats, they, they already know that they're, they're in Dukkha, right? Because they go on the retreat. Um, right. So why go through all that stuff? Yeah. And that that is so funny. There was one time <laughs> this actually happened in 2011. And that I actually uh, intentionally went to watch Suen Mok. I had heard that uh, Achan Po was not there that day. So I went ahead and signed up for the course. Uh, I got the room. In fact, uh, uh, made friends with the old guys and, and all of that. And there was Kun Meta and uh, Achan Meti and uh, uh, a German and several others. The point I'm making is, is that when Achan Po had found that I had signed up for the retreat, and my intention was because I wanted to hear my friend Dama Vitu, I wanted to hear his sequence of, of talks. Mm. When Achan Po found out that I was in the retreat, he says, why are you doing that? Here, come to watch someone walk <laughs> and I'll give you cootie in the back. And, you know, why do the retreat? He, uh, so that's exactly right. His, he, he, his position with me is, why are you doing a retreat? Didn't you get anything out of all of those retreats you did all those years ago? Mm. Well, yes, but I've got a different reason for doing the retreat now. And he said, okay. And I went ahead and did the retreat so that I could. Uh, turns out that because of sitting postures, I'm not uh, sitting places. I couldn't really hear everything that Dama V2 said, but it was still worthwhile. But you're making the point. Exactly. Why would anybody go do a retreat if they already hadn't been doing six step 16 of the uh, 16 stages of insight? They would have never started a retreat. Right. Maybe for solitude, maybe they can't find uh, um, a place to find solitude. Is that the words? Right. Seclusion. Maybe seclusion. they can't find seclusion, but um, I don't know. There's other options. Well, I would say go camping. Camping yeah, is a yeah. wonderful place to go seclusion. 
we call it camping, but the Buddha just says, go to the forest, <laughs> to the foot of a tree, to an empty right. hut, to a pile of straw, and sit down in seclusion. Here's the thing that's really interesting about a meditation retreat, is that 100 people or so all come together. They sit down in the meditation hall, all on their individual cushions, all separated by a certain amount of distance, all arranged in squares and whatnot like that. And everyone in there is now pretending to be in seclusion while they're in fact <laughs> with 100 people. Mm. So it's really not all of that secluded. Uh, the, the point, I guess, is, is that they should be getting instructions and so they could come together for instructions. But why have it set so that from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m., you all got to sit in the meditation hall. It's a required uh, sitting group, right? That's not Anapanasati. That's, uh, <laughs> I, I guess, that's Burmese military. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the point is, is that we need to get into seclusion. Once we get into seclusion from the outside world, then we need to get into seclusion from the world we brought in with us. So first, getting away from it all, and then getting away from all the stuff that we brought with us when we got away from it all. And that's the hindrances of the mind. That's the first thing that needs to be done. That's the purification of you. Excuse me, purification of the mind is because the mind is pure now because it's got no unwholesome thoughts, but it does have a whole bunch of wholesome thoughts, and we want to guide those and use those for the rest of our practice. But once we get into the state where we're completely free from the hindrances and all of our thoughts are completely wholesome, then that feeling of well being, the feeling of sukha, the feeling of exhilaration, and all of that naturally follows because the mind is in a really pure good state which means now that any noting that's to be done is going to be noting only real things that are also real and wholesome including how the mind actually works so we can begin to see how the mind works we can begin to see how there's an interaction relationship between perception and feelings there's an interrelationship between consciousness and perception. And so we begin to investigate down at that level. As we go through the jhanas, we can see those things more and more clearly. So you, you could say that the first jhana is to get rid of the second half of Paticca Samuppada. And now the first half. And as we go through the jhanas, we, we begin to take out more things. Eventually, we bring feeling and perception to absolutely secession. But that doesn't mean that a whole lot of other stuff is still not happening because the mind is really sharp and we can see a huge amount of stuff that's really going on in there. And so we begin to investigate. And one of the things that we're going to investigate, here's something. Let me talk to you about it like this. In the Satipatthana Sutta, uh, in the Dhammanupassana section, it basically has uh, subsections going like this. The first subsection is hindrances. The second subsection is the, uh, the five aggregates. The third sub uh, subsection is the seven factors of enlightenment. And the fourth subsection is the um, uh, Eightfold Noble Path. 
and the Four Noble Truths, which basically means then that once the student is free from the hindrances, now what we're going to be paying attention to is the way the mind works in relationship to the teachings of the Buddha. That we begin to actually, uh, in, uh, in the five aggregates, what we're looking at is feelings, perception, consciousness, sankara, and the body. But we have to do that when the mind is completely free from hindrances. Because otherwise, we won't be able to see things at that quick level because we'll be all the way up into the very slow stuff of uh, the second half. So we have to be in the, in the uh, first jhana. And so what we're going to do in first jhana is investigate what is first jhana. Okay, how did I get here? What is this thing? This is what's worthy of investigation. In other words, we're going to investigate our investigation. We're going to investigate our sati. We're going to investigate our uh, effort. We're going to investigate our attitude. We're going to investigate, especially sati. How's my sati? How's my sati? How's my sati? How's my sati? Over and over again, we keep looking at it. How's my sati? Is it quick? Is it fast? Is it um, uh, strong? Uh, and these are the things that are then worthy of paying attention to, as uh, as opposed to paying attention to the things that we normally pay attention to, which are associated with unwholesome thoughts. When we're associated only with wholesome thoughts, now we're paying attention to actually the, the way that the mind works, not how it winds up in suffering. So this is what we're going to spend our time on. This is what's worth noting is how's my joy? How's my sukha? How is my uh, um, uh, contentment? How is my euphoria? Yeah, how's my euphoria, guys? <laughs> <laughs> See. I think I tried, um, first, I did a lot of sitting, right, for, like formally and said, oh, this, this is meditation, whatever. And then um, I, then I, I moved into trying to just keep with long breathing throughout the day, whenever I, I you know, when, whenever I, I felt, uh, you know, <laughs> um, whenever you remember, yeah, whenever I could remember, whenever, whenever I could remember just to uh wake up i suppose i don't know but um then i i real i think i think now i can see i i need i do perhaps need more of a balance of it i would yeah. say that the one thing that the students miss or let's put it in two but they're all associated with right effort this takes effort this is not a passive meditation and yet advertised that way an, an example of uh, a passive meditation is choiceless awareness or Mahasi noting. Uh, the Zen, just sitting, that's a passive meditation. Anapanasati is an active meditation. It requires effort. And we're going to put in effort into, uh, let us just say two or three areas. The two areas that we normally would be uh, would be um, to change our thought from unwholesome to wholesome thought. That's one's right effort. 
to change our view from an unwholesome view to a wholesome view. This would be one's right effort. And also, I would say then the third one would be um, our breathing. To take the effort to do the long, deep in breathing and to take the effort to do the long, deep uh, out breath. But guess what? After we practice for a while, it becomes almost a habit. Yeah. It becomes easier and easier to remember to do it. But in the beginning, we have to have that effort. But we always will use the effort to remove unwholesome thoughts because the uh, um, the habits of unwholesome thinking is so deeply ingrained. And when I say the habits of unwholesome thinking, I'm talking about critical thinking. Our culture is based upon critical thinking. This is better than that. A B in school is okay, but an A is better. Okay, and that basically we make a lot of false boundaries. An example of that would be colors that we have the rainbow and that uh, there is a range from uh, between red and orange and that many cultures have different colors. For instance, in the poly, they make no distinction between blue and green. Some cultures don't. Uh, they use just one word for it. So that means then that the colors that are easy to remember are those that fit directly into the categories that we know. But if a color doesn't fit the category or is right on the boundary, then it's harder for us to define. And not only that, but that boundary then becomes really important. An example of that boundary would be like in school that there is a failing grade and there is a passing grade and let us say that at 66%. Okay, if you make 65, you're a failure. If you make 66, then you've passed. But look at the distinction between 65 and 66 is so tiny. Why is the boundary drawn there or why are any boundaries ever drawn at all? That, that that boundary drawing mechanism is what we're talking about. That critical thinking that draws these boundaries. And the boundary is between I like it, I don't like it. Or uh, judgmental thinking. But when we're not judging, when we take the boundaries off, then everything is just okay like it is. This is what we call nurturing thoughts. And this is what we want to practice is the nurturing thoughts. Everything's okay. Everything is fine. I don't have to t see the difference between 66 and 65. I don't have to make the judgment a pass or fail. We just let it be the way that it is. But that takes a major change in the mind. Because the, man, the mind has been trained to don't let things be the way they are. Go and slice it up. Slice it and dice it and um, uh, put boundaries in there so that you can understand things better. But really, when we really understand things, we should take all these boundaries out. So this is a way of looking at what is nurturing thought is thoughts that don't put boundaries in. This is better than that. An example of that is when we're looking at suka, suka, suka. Wow, suka is just suka. But many of the students will say, yeah, this is circle, but it's not as good as I thought it ought to be. Let me have more. 
All right. And now it's not Suka at all. Now it's Duka. This is how the mind works, is, is that even the wholesome stuff, we try to make it unwholesome. We have to be on guard. We have to keep watching. So this is where we keep putting in right effort. Right effort, right effort, right effort. One right effort after another right effort means that we're taking the unwholesome out and putting wholesome in. And as we do that, the skill to determine what is wholesome and what is unwholesome Right. Grows and gets sharp. I had a I had a question that um, I thought of a while back, and and then I, I just I just let it slide, um, but but it's it's popped up a few times, so maybe I should mention maybe I should talk about it. Um, pride as well, and encouraging students to um, kind of be confident in um, in themselves in, in in a way. It's I think it's a is it a complex issue or am I just making it complex for no reason? No, it really is complex. Basically, what, yeah. it, what pride is, is pride is the result of comparisons plus cheating. Can you repeat that, please? Pride is the result of comparison plus cheating. Cheating. Why do I say cheating? It's because the guy who is prideful doesn't really, really believe. He doesn't really believe it. That normally we can say then that uh, the poly word is manna or conceit. Hmm. And conceit means uh, competition. Right. Competition or comparisons. So that if I compare myself to someone else, I'm either going to win or to lose or to draw. Right? If I win, that's pride. Many times I actually go ahead and compete with someone just to prove to myself that I am better than they are so that I can have that feeling of pride because otherwise I really wasn't sure. That pride is based in doubt. And so it has to be proven Otherwise, we're going to feel back into the victim's position again. That's completely different than confidence. Someone who is completely confident doesn't even bother to compete. Because <laughs> okay. he knows he's going to win. He's won so many times before in all the competition, it gets boring and tiring. I mean, that's a lot of work to do to go around competing with folks. Yeah. Yeah. So if you know you're going to win anyway, then why bother to compete? Or if you recognize even deeper than that is, is that competition is a ridiculous way of spending one's time. So it doesn't even matter whether I would win or not. Why compete? But if we do compete, then that comes, there is pride. All right. So pride, you know, in Christianity, Christianity is really, really big on pride because they don't quite understand it. They think pride is, is that the guy's puffed himself up because he thinks that he's puffed up. No, pride is what people do to puff themselves up because they don't feel puffed up. Yeah. Okay, so the opposite then of pride is humility. 
Guess what? The Buddha was not big on either pride or humility. The Buddha was not humble. The Buddha was a lion. Not humble at all. But people think in uh, ordinary life that um, that hum humility is the exact opposite of pride. No, they're both the results of winning or losing a competition. That when one is really strong, when one really has that winning attitude, when one is really on top of his game, he doesn't bother to compete. So the competition itself, then, that's an underlying fetter. Hmm. And the way out of it is through confidence. Also, that underlying fetter of competition has another additional component to it, and that is the unsuredness or the fear that I might lose. Therefore, I want to cheat. I want to put my thumb on my scale because it's my scale anyway. Might as well put my thumb on my scale so that I will win. This is what we mean by criteria selection. Thumb on scale? Right. The thumb on the scale is how do we determine how to value something? Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Criteria selection is a very, very big deal. We use it all the time, but we don't quite understand what that means. In other words, if you're going to compare A to B, then you have to bring up characteristics. Hmm. And that list of characteristics is then your criteria for comparison. So let us say that you're going to compare A and B and that color is going to be one of the comparisons so that red color is better than yellow color. Right. But if you don't put color in there as one of the competitions, then how do you know that A is going to be better than B? And when you take all of the comparison uh, criteria out, then you can't compare A to B. But you couldn't anyway, because in the reality is, is that to really compare A to B, you have to factor in all of the criteria, and that's almost impossible to do. Because a human being, for instance, Mr. A and Mr. B, humans are extraordinarily complicated. How are you going to be able to tell Mr. A is better than Mr. B until you select the criteria to decide? And one of the criteria will often be morality. But joy could be another one. There's all kinds of different possible criteria that we select. And when we recognize that our, our, um, the, so the criteria that we select for I'm better than he is, is my thumb on the scale. I'm a, I'm a, Go ahead. So I'm a little bit confused about um, uh, competing, to be honest. I, I, used, to, I used to compete in uh, martial arts. Um, uh, events and um, I, I still play video games from time to time, which is you know uh, one player against another player for for the most part. And you know, at at the end, there's declared a winner or and a loser. But um, seeing seeing past the concept of winning and losing and, and just having fun, but it's also you know dependent on someone losing. And you're not really entirely sure on how they're going to take that. For me, it's okay, but I mean, I, 
it yeah. has a lot to do with the, the phrase, I am that icon. Or I am the avatar. Right. So in other words, you don't self-identify with don't that. don't really care whether you're the avatar or not, then you can just enjoy playing the game and learn all about it without having to win or lose. Yeah, yeah, that's that's what I like about it. Um, when I when I stopped, um, it came with the practice as well. I mean, I, I don't want to say that they're the same thing. <laughs> uh, who knows? Uh, it's, a, it's a path, right? But um, yeah, w once I started learning um, more about the boring stuff, actually, about playing the game, then it, it did become <laughs> more, more enjoyable. Does that make sense? It's the same with music, actually. Playing playing music um, together with with people. If you if you have as much fun as possible, and you're out of time, then the rest of then it's 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 not fun for everybody else. But if you're in time, it's quite boring and it's enjoyable. But it's also, you know, everybody everybody um, has fun. It's 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 interesting. I don't know if you have anything to say about that, or, or whether anything's needed to be said about it. Well, quite a lot could be said, but we've been going on for a while now. Um, we can possibly talk about this later. But the important thing is to look at is that we're, you're, I think, confusing the difference between conceit as competition between two people mm. versus just simply playing the game as competition because playing the game does not have to be competition even if there's winners or losers it's only a competition that game becomes only a competition when one of the people or both of them become involved in it in the sense of i am the winner or i am the loser of this game as opposed to just playing a game i mean kids um little kids play win-win games play what games win-win win-win games they win they win regardless of the outcome yeah that the the score does not determine who wins the game the enjoyment determines who wins the game mm, you know what i've seen some jokes about that um from from time to time i remember a, a, a skit from the simpsons actually where <laughs> one of one of the the children gets lowered a few grades down and all the games are everybody wins yay and the the kid's not happy about that because you know lisa doesn't yeah. like that at all because actually it was, i think it was bad <laughs> but yeah Bart's well, also very competitive yeah. mm. so that's the whole idea then can we play games without being it competitive but that's in fact how i play checkers with my daughter that's nice. Mm. Okay. Because I want her to win. <laughs> yeah. Good. But I want her to have to really work at it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You, you don't, do you, you don't, um, you don't intentionally make mistakes to see if she'll catch it or anything or, or what? Oh, no. I, I go <laughs> in intentionally making mistakes. Sorry, you, you, you do or you don't? I do. I okay. do intentionally yeah, yeah. make mistakes. To check, to check, yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. I intentionally set her up so that she can capture two of my pieces. Yeah, that's good. 
especially if I'm way ahead of her. If I'm way ahead of her because I played some sneaky and know something that she didn't or she didn't catch it, then the next couple of moves, I'll set it up so that she can get those pieces back again. Mm. Okay, yeah. Okay. And so this is a different kind of playing checkers. This is not tournament checkers. This is not <laughs> my life on the line. Right? I don't want to play that kind of checkers. That's when I'm involved. But in this case, I'm just having fun. Right, okay. And so her enjoyment is more important to me than whether I win the game or not. Mm. Okay. I hope that example helps. Yes, I think so. Um, a lot, a lot of, a lot of the the, the I the I am the winner part of of this is uh, has been the problem. Um, uh, let, let me let me let me think. There there are modern modern game design right now, um, especially for online multiplayer. I know they want they want to hook people for for money, right? Um, Absolutely. But but the the way this a certain subculture of games where people are trying to release things for free you know you know op, everyone loves open source everyone loves free software uh, mm-hmm. which is the open way to source. go you know dama dama is free whatever um, um <clears throat> but the problem that comes in is is when there's a rank or a title in uh in skill and obviously it's not real it's not a real indication of anything other than um I don't know. It's it's just overinflated, and uh, and kind of pointless. Right. Sucks away. Sucks away the fun. Kind Takes of. Takes away the fun. And yeah. in fact, a lot of people make the big mistake that the better I get at a particular game, the better my skills are at that game, the more fun I'll have playing the game. And that's not always the case. Right. Yeah. And in fact, you can see that people who are like a world champion chess tournaments, those guys sweat buckets. Yeah, they they I mean, yeah. they <laughs> it's like 15 rounds in a uh, boxing match. And that's another one. Why would people want to box? They say, oh, if I'm a good boxer, I'll enjoy being a boxer. No, you won't. You'll get the tar beat out of you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and just because you're beating the tar out of somebody else doesn't make it feel you feel any better, I don't suppose. That's the whole idea then of competition. And you have kind of made a mistake in the sense of there's a difference between playing a game and being in a competition. The playing of the game is always playful in the sense that the outcome of the game doesn't matter what important (laughs) is how we play the game. Yeah. But in our world, we've got it to where I don't care how you play the game. The outcome is the only important thing. That's exactly what happens in in politics. That the it's, Democrats still yeah. say that I do care about how the game comes out, but how we play the game is kind of important. Yeah, politics and Republicans sports. Say, no, no, I only want to play. I only want to win the game, and I don't care what it takes to win the game. That's all we care about is I want that power. Yeah. So there's the two different kinds. One is playing the game because we enjoy playing games. And the other one is I'm playing this game because I want to win. And I'm not going to enjoy playing the game. I'm only going to enjoy winning it if I do. So politicians, they, they want, they want the title, they want the power and and they want, they want to be known that 
they're the winner. Um, uh -huh. Yeah. Whereas, I don't, I don't know. I don't know enough about like how, I don't know enough about government systems. But if I, I'm, I'm assuming if there's someone out there who actually does care properly about the right things, that they they won't put themselves. They would not tend to put themselves Everyone. out there, and you know, there's that thing about pride as a banner, right? As a mm -hmm. banner displaying, um, uh, inflating, uh, yeah, which you already mentioned. Everything is a mixed bag. Mm. Everyone does both. Some people do one of them 99% of the time and the other only 1%. And some people are kind of like mixed in the sense of half the time I play games and I enjoy playing the game. And half the time I get involved in the game. I put money in it or, or something. And in fact, that's something that's also quite interesting is uh, the, the difference uh, in marbles between whether we play for funsies or play for keeps. <laughs> Have you ever heard of those oh, two yeah. terms? Yeah, huh? yeah. Right. Okay. So funsies is playing the game. Playing the game for keeps means that if I lose my marbles, he takes them and he goes home with my marbles and they're not my marbles anymore. Okay. That's when they're my marbles. That's when it's no longer a game. Now it's a competition. Uh, now ownerships come in and, and now you've Ownership, got Ownership, Yeah. You got it. That's when it comes in is when the selfishness comes in. And that's in. when people get upset and dukkha. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. There's the dukkha and all of that kind of stuff. That's it. You got it. That's the connection. Selfishness. Mm. The self, when the self comes into that competition, when it becomes mana or ego, when the person is competing for winning or losing, as opposed to just playing a game, just yeah. enjoying playing. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we've been going on a couple of hours now, and I got another caller, so I'll uh, 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 finish off this. Marcus, this has been a really great chat. <laughs> yeah, good talk. Thanks, Samrata. Okay, so we've covered Paticca Samupada and we've covered about Vedana and how Vedana uh, is of three, four kinds. One of them is wise. And when we're feeling wise, that means that the, the liking that we have is not based upon wanting. It's just based upon liking, that things are pleasant. Hmm. But when our liking becomes wanting, that's when it's in the direction of dukkha. So be sure that whatever you want is immediately available because if you <laughs> yeah. want something that's not immediately available, then that means that you want something you don't have, and that's dukkha. Mm. So wanting a drink and the water is here, you take a drink and you're satisfied. But if you want not just a drink, but you want a special drink like a Heineken's or something, and there's no Heineken's here, now that's suffering. But if you say, well, no Heineken's here, but that was just a thought, not a desire, and water is here, let me have the water instead, and now I'll feel ha happy. Yeah. Mm. And so it all has to do then with bringing the thoughts back to wholesome thoughts. And that's when we cut that particular samapada right in half. When we've only got wholesome thoughts, we don't even go into that part of the Vedana that leads into Dukkha. So go have a few wholesome thoughts there, Marcus. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, we'll do. Have a have a nice day, Damaretto.
<laughs> okay, see you later. Bye-bye.